John the Baptist thus illustrates a crucially important point. Human beings discover their greatest importance in pointing to Jesus. What this means is just as John the Baptist's greatness turns on the immediacy with which he pointed out who Jesus is, so your greatness, my greatness, turns on the immediacy with which we can point out who Jesus is. Today on the Songtime broadcast, we continue our Advent series as we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. This weekend's message from Dr. D.A. Carson takes us to the story of the Song of Zechariah, who is is the father of John the Baptist, the one who will prepare the way of the Lord. We'll ask the question today, what is it that made John the Baptist great in the eyes of God? Stay tuned for that message. But first, we'll be joined by a radio regular. Bob Lapine will be on the broadcast today as the many voices come together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. What are the emotions that you're feeling during this holiday season? I hope that they are the positive ones. And in fact, I hope that they're the the emotions of Advent. We have the four emotions of hope, peace, joy, and this weekend, if your church is following that tradition, uh, the theme is love. Those are all great emotions to be feeling, especially around this joyous holiday season. But the truth is, the reality is that most of you are probably dealing with a whole bevy of emotions, emotions that are beyond your ability to even control or comprehend. I I know that there are some who are going into this season for the first time without a loved one. In fact, uh, my mother-in-law passed away uh, last month, and my wife is really struggling during this season. And I know many of you are struggling as well. As you're grieving, grief is a heavy emotion that some of you are probably processing during this season, going into it the first time without that particular loved one that you've shared this season with for so much of your life. However, there's also bitterness and anger and strife. At the very core of all of our relationships, there is conflict, and sometimes uh, that even overextends beyond the positive emotions of getting together for the holidays. Well, our guest today is Bob Lapine, who's written a book called The Four Emotions of Christmas. And while this book is designed as a great resource for evangelism, you can hand it out to your unbelieving friends and invite them to come uh, next week to a Christmas service or a Christmas Eve service. This is also a a great resource for all of us to consider as we think about the the tremendous weight of emotions during this holiday season. And Bob, that is really the core of your book as you're addressing the the many overwhelming feelings that come with this holiday. Yeah, starting from the first Sunday in Advent up to December 25th, our our schedules are more packed than ever. Um, Our expectations about what life is going to be like, we've got a lot loaded in. We have a lot of melancholy. We've got memories. There's sentiment from our childhood, either good or bad, that we experienced growing up. And so we come into the Christmas season with a lot of... um, expectations, a lot of hopes, a lot of goals. And oftentimes we get in the middle of it and we go, I'm overwhelmed. I'm sad. I'm stressed out. I'm not sure why. I thought Christmas was going to be magical. And and here I am feeling 
depressed in the middle of the Christmas season. That's one of the things I wanted to try to speak to in this book. Hmm. You're talking about the first chapter here is disappointment. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of unrealistic expectations come with the weight of Christmas, and you're talking about that a little bit. The idea of trying to make everything perfect and beautiful and bright, we forget from year to year that things really aren't as Tinseltown as they were. You know, our memories are far better at editing out the negative from last year than they are uh, going into this year. There's a lot that goes into that that lead us to feeling disappointed during the holiday season. Well, most of us during childhood we're taught to expect magic from Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are flying reindeer involved. There are snowmen who come to life. I mean, this is this is the picture we get. And so we head into this season thinking, could it be real that that we would experience the magic and the delight and the wonder and the the, the mystery of it all? And and during the Christmas season, maybe we get a gift that we'd been expecting, and so there's that we're we're happy with that. Now, now wait, now now that you're an adult you have all of these preloaded memories of this is what was special for me. Can it still be true as an adult? And so you're right. The expectations, whether, whether they're front of mind or not, whether we're actually um, thinking about this on the front end or not, uh, we do have a lot of subtle expectations that we carry in that somehow the month of December is going to, produce in me wonder and delight and joy and happiness. And then we find ourselves disappointed when we get to December 19th and we go, where's, where is what I've been longing for? Why, why am I not experiencing it here at the Christmas season? Yeah. I think as well, it's trying to keep up the sort of spirit yourself and trying to make it exciting yes. and doing all of this to to build that excitement in other people and other people don't react the same way that we react. There's a lot of conflict there where we're trying to hold on to the nostalgia of our childhood memories in some ways and pass that on to the next generation. And they don't take it as seriously as we took it. You know, video games are far more exciting than the block toys that we played with. So it's a challenge to have that sort of sentiment and that mentality and unrealistic expectations that aren't going to be fulfilled during the holiday season. Well, and I remember um, as a child opening gifts on Christmas that I had been hoping for and dreaming of and thinking, when I get this toy, this toy is going to produce a level of of joy and delight that I have never known before. And I would get it and I'd be excited and I'd play with it for 45 minutes on Christmas. And then I was like, well, that didn't deliver. So it's an unfulfilled, unmet expectation that even as a child, I'm I'm learning, I thought this would give me something more than it's giving me. And honestly, that that can be helpful because we begin to recognize that joy is not found in stuff or in sentiment or in the holidays. So we start to look, where is real joy found? And that's what the message of Christmas ultimately is all about where real joy is found. We've been talking with Bob Lapine about his excellent book called The Four Emotions of Christmas, a great resource to be passed out to your friends and your family, especially unbelievers, along with an invitation to join you and your family for a Christmas or Christmas Eve service. Let's make this season really about sharing our faith. And as we anticipate celebrating Christmas next weekend, let's make Christ the center of our celebration. Let's not forget to gather with other believers to worship God 
and to bring others to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's not put ourselves first. Let's put Christ first. And this will help us process the varied emotions of Christmas. To find out more information about Bob Lapine and his excellent book, The Four Emotions of Christmas, give us a call. It's 508 362 7070. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com. As you consider your gifts and contributions to the various ministries that you support, could I invite you to support Songtime in your end of the year giving? So you think about all the Christmas presents you got to put under the tree and all the people that you got to shop for. Consider supporting the work that has been a blessing in your life. If we've been able to encourage you, if we've been able to help you in your walk with Christ, consider giving back your donation that helps keep this broadcast on the air. It's not only a blessing to you, it's a blessing to us, but it's also a blessing to your community as they get to hear the broadcast as well. Write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable. Massachusetts 02630 or give us a call. It's 508 362 7070. It's 508 362 7070. And you can always head over to our website at songtime.com. You can make a safe and secure donation online. Well, today we are continuing our Advent series this weekend, looking at the last part of Luke chapter 1, a story of Zechariah as he is proclaiming this prophecy in song about his son, but it's really less about John the Baptist as much as it is about Jesus Christ. We find this in this whole long chapter that is intertwining the story of Zechariah and Mary and both of their sons and their destinies, and in today's message, D.A. Carson will talk about how John the Baptist's greatest achievement is really about pointing others to Jesus Christ. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Now, the obvious question to ask is, is that redemption, this visitation of God, coming in this child? We're talking about John the Baptist here. So is it John the Baptist who's going to bring about this great salvation? You read the whole song and very little of it has to do with John the Baptist. It's all about what John the Baptist is going to announce. So when we read, for example, God, verse 69, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Well, that can't be referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the son of a priest. That made him a Levite. The house of David was from the tribe of Judah. Did did you see? You work right through the whole psalm and you discover that there's almost nothing in the entire psalm here, the entire psalm, that is really talking about John the Baptist, except when you get to the end, you discover John the Baptist has been called on the scene of history to point out this great Redeemer. This anticipation comes in three parts. First, anticipation from the line of David, verses 69 to 71. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people to redeem them. In what manner has he come? He has raised up a horn of salvation for us and those of his servant David. That's the manner in which he's come, through this promised Davidic king. And he will set aside, he will destroy the enemies of his own covenant people. In the Old Testament, those enemies took the form of Babylonians and Assyrians who were constantly attacking the land and trotting off with their produce and destroying their crops and the like. But eventually that is ratcheted up into a much bigger concept of the notion of the enemies of the people of God. The most fundamental enemy is not the Hittites. It's sin and destruction and death itself. 
And this Davidic king will destroy all of the enemies. So here is anticipation from the line of David. And then anticipation from the line of Abraham, verses 72 and following. He has come, verse 72, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Well, now you're going back another thousand years. Abraham, of course, was the ancestor of the Hebrews. He was the first one set aside, the beginning of this entire Israelite heritage and community. Because this brings up the covenant that God made, this agreement that God made with Abraham 2,000 years earlier. In this covenant that from his seed would come one who would bless all the nations with salvation from their bitterest enemies. And that brings us then to the third section of this hymn, anticipation from the ministry of John the Baptist himself. 76, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Well, those of you who know your Bibles, immediately you have to think of how John the Baptist preached. How does Luke record these things in chapter 3? Chapter 3, verse 1. It's worth reading some of this chapter. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see? Exactly has been ordained of him. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, now quoting Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. That's a way of signaling repentance. Instead of the rough places of life, now it's becoming a smooth path because of repentance and faith. The crooked roads will become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see not John's salvation, but God's salvation. And then the working out of how this transpires in the lives of different social classes follows in the next verses. Then verses 78 and 79, he will do all of this because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. That was another Old Testament phraseology to talk about um, the anticipated coming of the Messiah, the rising sun, not S-O-N, S-U-N, picturing everything in darkness, and the sun rises and begins to shed light. And that language is also drawn from Isaiah, Isaiah 9. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living by the sea, the sun rises upon them and sheds light. Jesus himself quotes those words in Matthew's gospel at the onset of his own ministry. Now the illusion is made once again. Galilee of the Gentiles confirming that the one that John the Baptist is announcing comes from David's line in fulfillment of Abraham's promise that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. John the Baptist thus illustrates a crucially important point. Human beings discover their greatest importance in pointing to Jesus. 
There's a remarkably interesting passage in Matthew chapter 11. I don't have time to unpack it in detail. But there, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So in Jesus' mind, John the Baptist is greater than King David. John the Baptist is greater than Abraham. John the Baptist is greater than Solomon. John the Baptist is greater than Isaiah. There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus says. Barring, of course, himself in the context of the argument. And the context of Matthew 11 shows why that's the case. Because although Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and David and so on all pointed to Jesus in some sense or other, only to John the Baptist was it given to say, there, that's the man. That's the Lamb of God. That's the one whose, whose sandals I'm not worthy to undo. He must increase. I must decrease. It fell to John's place in all the stream of redemptive history to point out exactly who Jesus was with greatest immediacy. And that's what made John the Baptist great. And then, in the same verse, Matthew 11, 11, Jesus adds, and indeed, I tell you the truth, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. That means, if you're a believer today, if you're in the kingdom in that sense, you're greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was greater than King David. So you're greater than King David. What this means is, just as John the Baptist's greatness turns on the immediacy with which he pointed out who Jesus is, so your greatness, my greatness, turns on the immediacy with which we can point out who Jesus is. When we look at the intertwining stories between Mary and Zachariah, we see so many similarities. Both of them were visited by the angel Gabriel. Both of them were told that they would have a son, and both of them were given the destiny of their son to help usher in the kingdom of God on earth, even as it is in heaven. John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah, would be the one to prepare the way of the Lord, and Jesus would be the Messiah, the Son of God himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords in the line of the King of, da of David. Um, this is a beautiful summation of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. But one of the things that is utterly unique about these stories is the characters of Mary and Zechariah themselves. They often become background characters to Jesus and John the Baptist, but they have a tremendous lesson for you and for me. You see, Mary's witness, Mary's testimony is that she believed the word of the Lord and she kept it. That is what made her great in the eyes of God. She is the model of, of Abraham, who in Genesis 15, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Zechariah stumbled in this point because he doubted the power of God and he questioned the angel when he was told that he would have a son because he was of old age and his wife was barren. But God continued to use even Zechariah. But for this example, we see that John the Baptist's hopes and dreams were not fulfilled in his son, but the one his son would be pointing to, pointing to Jesus. And in this, we are shown that if we want to achieve greatness in the kingdom of God, just like Zechariah and John the Baptist, it's not about us achieving those seats for ourselves or us getting those positions of, for our own children is really about pointing to the one who is uh, the only one who can take that throne, who can establish that kingdom. Our greatness in the kingdom of God is, is based upon 
pointing to Jesus. Both of these principles still apply today, that God is God blesses those who believe his word and keep it, and God exalts those, as we see with John the Baptist, who was the greatest in the kingdom because he pointed to Jesus, and you and I have that opportunity as well. As we consider our calling in life, and we call walk worthy of the calling by which we have been called, we must consider as well to be obedient to our call to go and make disciples, to go and bear witness, to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. During this holiday season, make sure that you are declaring the work of Christ in your life, that you've surrendered to him as your king, and that you are pointing others to him. May this season be a fruitful season for the kingdom of God. I hope that we have been able to encourage you, and I hope that if you have been blessed, you'll let us know. One of the ways that you can do that is by just writing to us, sending in an end-of-the-year donation of any amount. It just lets us know that you're listening, that you're out there, and that helps us formulate our programming and how we function and, and sort of sort out our role and scope of our ministry. If you have been blessed, please don't let the season pass without letting us know. Write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. That's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com, or you can look us up on social media. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 2:14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased.